Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And in today's podcast, we're going to just think again about the handover of the patient from the pre-hospital crew to the in-hospital crew. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the excellent group discussion that was recorded at SMAC in Dublin. And what we're going to do today is just go over some of those key points and try and give you a bit of a framework for how your handover works in your hospital. So we'll think about this from two different sides, if you're the team in hospital and if you're the pre-hospital team. Let's imagine you're the trauma team leader and really we're focusing here on those major trauma handovers. What is it that you're doing to prepare your team as you know that the pre-hospital team is about to be there with you? Typically, the notification that you're getting a major trauma patient coming to the hospital comes by a phone and ambulance control. And that gives you a time to prepare. And I think that's absolutely golden time, which is often wasted, actually. There's a huge number of things you can do with the team as they arrive. You've got the inpatient specialist coming down. You've got the ED team. You've got the nurses, the doctors. You've got the radiologists coming down. A whole bunch of different people who can focus on what's required. Now, some of that's fairly generic. Some of it is about who's going to be the scribe, who's going to be the trauma team leader, who's going to take the airway, who's going to get vascular access, who's going to do the primary survey. It's good to allocate those roles and it's good to get feedback from people about how they're going to do it, whether they're competent to do it and whether they're confident to do it. Remembering that confidence and competence are very different things. The second aspect is about trying to predict what's going to happen. The call that comes through from the trauma cell or from the scene often gives you clues about what you're likely to need to do. And you can prepare for that. If somebody's been stabbed in the chest and they're hypotensive, then you really should be preparing to do the thoracotomy when the patient arrives. If somebody's got a head injury and they've got a low GCS, then you really should be preparing to do an RSI when that patient arrives. Now, you might argue you should be able to do everything to every patient all the time, but there's no reason why you can't get specific and brief people and get them excited, get them interested and get them prepared to what is likely to happen. Now, there's a couple of things I do as a trauma team leader that feed into that. The first thing I think is when you get the pre-alert from the pre-hospital team that you've got a trauma arriving, often that can be 30 minutes away, 45 minutes away. And the urge is to then pick up the phone and immediately call the trauma team. Or the other option is to say, major trauma to recess in... 20 minutes. At our hospital, we caution against that. I think for two reasons. The first is if you call the trauma team too early, you get that briefing done and then there's a degree of hanging about where the concentration is lost and the focus is lost. And then the second thing is if you say to the team, major trauma in 20 minutes, they go and do something else. So they go off and they try and pop the cannula in or they go and review a patient, by which time they lose focus on what the time is. Our recommendation where I work in Southampton is that you put the call out and in essence, you put it out 15 minutes before the trauma is due to arrive and you don't say what time they're coming. It's major trauma, recess. And then the, the team have to come down at that time. And then you've got that 10 to 15 minutes to do the briefing as you describe. I have to say a lot of the stuff we've done at Southampton, a big nod to Bruce Armstrong, nurse consultant, who from his military background introduced us to a lot of these concepts. So then we've got the second bit you mentioned, Simon, where you're briefing the team. And I have a very standardized way in which I do that. It's very tempting when the team arrive to start giving each one piecemeal information. But I try, if I can, to hold it so that I tell the whole team once what it is that's going to happen next, rather than the orthopedic surgeon asking what's going on, or then the anaesthetist. And then that time, the repetition just doesn't work. So gather the team, ask them all to be patient, give them a hint about what's coming on. Yes, we've got a major trauma. They'll be here in 10 minutes. I'll brief you when the team's arrived. 
and then start the briefing then when the whole team is there. I'd agree with all of those things. I think doing the, the big team brief together and remember that that's the whole team, the multidisciplinary team. You've got to get the nurses and the radiographers involved in that as well. I've seen some poor examples where it becomes very tribal. So each tribe briefs its own terrible idea. It's the opportunity to brief everybody all together. And then what I'll often do is if I've got something specific that's been a clue coming out of the pre-hospital information, I will then go and speak to that individual and make sure that they're comfortable, competent and confident about what I particularly want them to do with this particular trauma. Once I've done that briefing about what's happening to the different team members, I'll then go round the room and ask each team member to introduce themselves using their first name, They'll also have stickers on their green plastic aprons, which I want them to write their first name on, anticipate they're going to do in this major trauma. And it sounds silly because even if I've done three traumas in one day, I'll still do it with the team, whatever, even if it's exactly the same team that we had before, just so we all know exactly what we're doing. And I do encourage that we use first names with some of our more senior surgical colleagues. They sometimes feel uncomfortable with that. But I'll have a quiet word and say, listen, Mr. Bailey, do you mind if we call you Ian during the trauma resuscitation? And he'll always say yes, because it brings that hierarchy down and we're all on a level playing field. That's something we do in our handovers. We've not done it for the trauma teams, but I think it's actually a very good idea. I might give that a whirl. So you've briefed the team, you've gone round, everyone said what they're going to do. The next thing is for them to prepare what it is they need to be ready for, just as you said. And that's the key timing. Sometimes, especially with helicopter teams coming in, they can overestimate or underestimate the time that they're going to arrive just because of landing times, transfer times, that sort of thing. So you've got to keep the team on their metal about what's going on. And as you said, that mission rehearsal as the team is preparing is really important. And I'll talk through. So the patient's going to come in. We're going to put them to the side of the bed. We'll do a hands-off handover. More about that in a second. And then we're going to take them across. Steve, you're going to do the airway assessment. Jimmy, you're going to do the breathing and circulation assessment. Philippa, you're going to be doing IV access. And you keep going so that until you've every member of the team has got their role. You've done the mission rehearsal. The patient's arriving. Now, I think as a team leader, it's really important to introduce yourself to the pre-hospital team. And I've been on both sides of this. So I will say, even if I know the team that is coming in, I will say, hi, I'm Ian. I'm the trauma team leader today. Is your patient stable for a hands-off handover? Now, this is something we do at Southampton, which we've learned from Bruce and the military, which I don't always see in other hospitals that I take patients to. But really, this is saying, do you need to continue resuscitation or can we park the patient up? Are they stable enough so that we can all quietly listen? And if the team who are bringing them in say yes, the patient's put next to the trolley, not transferred, and we have absolute silence while the pre-hospital team deliver their handover. If they're uncomfortable that the patient needs further resuscitation, I'll ask the pre-hospital team to transfer the patient straight over. And for me, that pre-hospital team continue leading the major trauma resuscitation until such a time that they're happy to hand over to me. Do you do something similar in Manchester, Simon? I do, very much so. What I will do, because of the geography of our department, I will go out and I will speak to the lead paramedic as the patient is being brought in and tell them what the plan is for handover and make sure they're happy for that. So in exactly the same way that you do, my team is already briefed that the patient's going to come into the side of the bed and we're going to do a hands-off handover unless they're critically unwell. So we do pretty much exactly the same sort of thing. And I draw a corollary here with cardiac arrest. So cardiac arrest patients, obviously you can't do a stop hands-off handover 
over. So what we'll do for that group of patients is bring them in, get them across the trolley, get them on the monitors, continue the CPR, and then do the handover once we've established that resuscitation is continuing. So I, I see those two things working very well together, particularly this hands-off, eyes-on, ears-open handover is just brilliant to brief the whole team at the same time. And as they mentioned in our part one of our podcast, it doesn't need to take long that handover. If everybody's listening, it can happen once. And we'll come to the format of that in a second. So just going over the in-hospital side, you get the trauma pre-alert. You think about the time that you need to call your trauma team down. My recommendation would be don't use timing as in it's in 15 minutes and don't call immediately so the team's hanging around. You want them to be at the height of their adrenaline rush that is under control so that they're focused and concentrating when they arrive. They're not distracted by something else. When they arrive, you want to do a whole team briefing to everybody. We're going to introduce ourselves with our first names and describe what it is what we're going to do. And then we're going to do a mission rehearsal. And then when the patient arrives, we're going to ask the pre-hospital team after introducing who we are as the trauma team leader, is the patient stable for a hands-off handover? Now let's flick now to the pre-hospital side. Simon, we've both done some pre-hospital medicine. As you said in that podcast from SMAC, this can be a really stressful time for the pre-hospital team. The in-hospital team have to understand that. There's far fewer people in the pre-hospital environment and you're busy doing stuff. And particularly if you've got a critically unwell patient, it's the cognitive load is huge. And so preparing yourself for the handover whilst keeping the patient alive, whilst keeping an idea about all the things that are going on and judging timings and perhaps having communications with various people like the trauma cell or director of the hospital, it's a really complex environment. And then you come into this room full of people in this expectation that you're going to perform and the stress levels are high. They really are high. There is a pressure that you need to do well. You're in front of your peers. If it's me and I'm pre-hospital doctor, I'm taking a patient into my own hospital. There's a degree of comfort because I know people. But on the other hand, I don't want to look stupid. But you're right. The pre-hospital environment, unless you've been there, it can be chaotic. It can be fraught. It can be incredibly difficult. And so for me, I would say to the in-hospital team, the handover is not the time to start criticising your pre-hospital colleagues or making them look like they missed something out. Maybe the patient hasn't got a pelvic binder. That's not through any fault of the pre-hospital team that you can sort out there. You can have a quiet word later on when everything's died down, but there's no point in the handover making them feel silly. Now, as the pre-hospital doctor coming in, I will do the same as I've done on the other side, if you like. So I will go in and I will introduce myself, regardless of even if it's the hospital that I normally work in. Hello, I'm Ian. I'm the doctor working on Helimed 5.6 today. Can I give you a handover? Then I will start my handover. Now, we use Atmist. The, as you said in the SMAC podcast, there's lots of different acronyms, but Atmist works for me. So age, time of injury, and then mechanism, injuries, signs, and treatments. If I have time as we come into a hospital, I'll write some of my notes down because it is stressful and you forget things, but I'll always go back to that format so that I have a framework when I get that fear in front of my colleagues that I've missed something out then I'll, I'll be able to stick to it. The thing I think that's really important with the handover is only say the bits that matter. So don't you don't need to add in all the extra bits, especially for major trauma. Only mention the medication that matters. So if they're on warfarin or an anticoagulant, then that matters. But it probably doesn't matter if they're on antihypertensive medication. Stick to the stuff that matters and use that framework. What you're illustrating there is the handover is the starting gun for the in-hospital team. It's not the whole story. It's just the introduction and the first chapter to get the team up and running, understand what's been going on and what has been done so that they can continue the resuscitation. There's ample time later on to talk about more detail, to get more information about the scene, relatives, medication, social circumstances, legal circumstances. 
that sort of thing can be transferred over once the resuscitation is in process. So it's very important that the pre-hospital team hangs around to give more information and to clarify as the resuscitation continues. And normally as a pre-hospital team, we will have paperwork or stuff that we have to complete. So we will be in the recess room for a time, but I'm very keen not to get in the way of the the in-hospital trauma team. Now, the thing I tend to do at the end of my handover, so I've gone through mechanism, injuries, signs, treatments. And when I think I've finished my handover, I will end with that completes my handover. Is there any other urgent information that you require? So that the in-hospital team knows I am done. It's a bit like any story you write or a talk you give. The beginning needs to have a strong start and you need to end strongly so that people can bookend what it is that you've said and they know that you've finished. At that point, if there's no questions, I'll step away and I'll start to try and help getting the monitoring off the patient and move away and start paperwork. It may be the trauma team leader comes over and wants to ask a few questions. It may even be that there's other members of the team who need to ask something, but I'll be sure to make sure that it is now the trauma team leader who is in charge, not me. Even if this is my hospital where I work, this is not me anymore. My pre-hospital job is done. So that really moves us from one phase, the pre-hospital handover phase, to the hospital team. And that's quite clear that what you've done there is given clear direction. You've given a structured handover, which on this occasion is the Atmist, which is what we use in, in certainly in my hospital. And it ends with a clear direction that one handover is finished and the next process is starting. Now, for the patient, it's clearly got to appear to be seamless. The services do need to have clear delineation between one process and the next. As we mentioned when we talk about the in-hospital team, if the patient does require further resuscitation, as the pre-hospital doctor, I will ask if I can continue being the team leader until such time that I am comfortable that I can hand the patient over. This isn't me being arrogant, thing. I'm thinking I'm better than the hospital team at resuscitation. I just know what's been going on. I know what's been happening in flight or on the ambulance journey in. I know in my head what it is that needs to happen. And really, let's remember, pre-hospital medicine should just be the start of the resuscitation. And as you say, it's seamless. So this isn't about one team and the next. It's one big team. And we need to have the leadership that's required, but at the right time. So if you're the trauma team leader and the pre-hospital doctor asks if they can continue leading the, the resuscitation, this isn't a mark on your ability. This is just that they haven't felt that they've got things under control enough and they have been able to impart all the information they need in order to hand the patient to you at that time. So Ian, can I ask you a couple of controversial questions about handover that people may have experienced in the past? So the first one would be when a trauma team, when a trauma alert comes through to the hospital, should we always inevitably call a full trauma team or is it acceptable sometimes to just call specific specialties down? So this may be where hospitals differ in how they prioritise things. At my hospital, we have two levels of trauma, a level one trauma and a level two trauma. A level two trauma is managed in the department. It's without the full trauma team. The patient's injured, but they don't trigger, if you like, those major trauma red flags. We do have times where that level two trauma becomes a level one because you discover that actually the pre-hospital information had changed or was, wasn't quite complete. And it is really hard to upscale from level two to level one because then you get specialties arriving in dribs and drabs, all asking the information. In fact, going against everything we've just talked about. For me, I would rather overcall level one traumas and then be able to say to people, thanks so much for coming down. We clearly don't need you here. I'll let you know if there's anything else we need. It may mean that you've got extra doctors there, but as we've said, we're only going to keep them for a short period of time. They're not hanging around for 45 minutes. They're there for 15 minutes before, maybe 10. They're there for the briefing and they're there for the handover. If at the handover, it becomes obvious that they're not required, 
well, that's okay. And immediately as the trauma team leader, I'll say, thanks very much. Obviously, we don't need you and let them get on with their work. It also gives us that chance to get together as a team and practice and know individuals. As you know, Simon, I'm a big believer that if you know the first name of the person you're working with or you've had a conversation with them, then you're much more likely to get on with them and work together well. My feeling would always be to call the whole trauma team but assure them you'll quickly let them get on with their other work if they're not required. So we have a slightly different view. It's actually quite close, to be honest. Our default position is you call the full trauma team. At the discretion of the trauma team leader, they may call an internal trauma team, just as you've described, or they may call a specific specialty if it's obvious that you have a particular problem. So for instance, we got alerted for a trauma for a chap with a a severely dislocated ankle, had no other injuries, and so therefore it wasn't a full trauma team alert. One of the things we've noticed though is that that issue of upscaling is really important. During the day when we've got several emergency medicine consultants on the shop floor who are all TTLs who have a full range of skills, the specialties are well staffed during the day, during the week, we can upscale really quite quickly. At three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, we can't. And so you have this strange paradox that we're much more likely to call a full trauma team out of hours than we are in hours because of that issue of upscaling. We do need to remember that as a a department, we have a responsibility to the whole hospital as well. I always try and remind our guys that if you're calling doctors down to the department, you are taking them away from other work. They're not sitting there just waiting for you to call them. If you do call the trauma team, it's likely that theatre activity will be put on hold. It's likely that there may be a patient bumped off the end of the theatre list because you've had the anaesthetist waiting with you for half an hour. You've got to be careful to make sure that you balance your needs And this goes for the whole of emergency medicine. You balance your needs for your patient actually with the needs of the whole and the other patients who are in your hospital, even though they're not obvious to you and you may not see them. Question number two. We often get requests from the pre-hospital team to have specific people or treatments ready for when the patient arrives. So somebody might say, we need the burns and plastics there. Or they might say something like, we need to be um, putting a chest drain in when the patient arrives. How do you handle those kind of requests? So this can differ depending on who it is in the pre-hospital team that's bringing you the patient. So most of our pre-hospital service who come into Southampton are doctors who work with us regularly and you know them and you will always trust them. If you're getting doctors who are bringing patients in from other areas, that can be slightly difficult because you just don't know what sort of service you're going to get. I will always take that information on advisement, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to call those people down. We have a trauma service that's set up. We know what it is that we need to do. Now, the one corollary to that is probably the cardiothoracic service. Our cardiothoracic surgeons are not part of our trauma team. If I had news of a traumatic cardiac arrest with penetrating chest trauma, I would be totally confident that the trauma team themselves could manage that. But I would ask the cardiothoracic registrar to be present in recess at the same time for when the trauma team arrive. Ironically, and this may be as controversial again, sometimes the cardiothoracic registrar is not the best person to do the clamshell thoracotomy in recess. But I might leave you to think about that one rather than expanding on that further now. Yeah, one for another day. And then finally, just one last question. It's not really a question, really. It's an observation and a request. Is We talked about handover and this transfer of information. If you've worked pre-hospital like we have, you'll know that you're operating in an environment where it's not always clear what's going on with the patient. And you're making probabilistic diagnoses and attempts to work out what's going on, really very limited information. 
patient will then arrive, they'll have a good assessment by a whole range of specialists, lots of people, lots of time, go through a CT scanner and get definitive care. That's golden information for those pre-hospital team workers. So I always make the time, if I can, or whenever possible, either there and then, or if I see the crew at a later time, to tell them what we found. Because I think closing that loop is really important for education, learning, and ultimately the benefit of all trauma patients. You're right. It is really important so that you can put the whole story together. But as we've always talked about with feedback, you have to be careful with how you give that. It does take skill to be able to make sure you give the right information in the right way. The pre-hospital environment is highly emotive. It's really emotional. You may have had, as I I've had when I was once resuscitating a small child, the father standing next to me saying, you won't let her die, will you? The environment is sometimes crazy and very difficult to translate to people in hospital unless they've done it. Just when you're giving that feedback, as I'm sure you are, Simon, be mindful that they have experienced something in the pre-hospital environment that you didn't see. So as we've always said, in fact, what I've decided are my two rules for emergency medicine. The first one is be kind. And the second one is don't be a dick. So just make sure you think about what you're saying, think about where they've been and be kind when you give that feedback. And it will be really appreciated by that team because they do want to know and they want to improve on the next job and the next job and get better at what they're doing. That rapid feedback then is about confirmation of what their ideas and thoughts were pre-hospital and whether you can confirm them or refute them. I think it's very much focused on their ideas rather than us delivering a judgment. That would be an appalling thing to do in in that short environment. So in this podcast, we've thought about handover. Hopefully this is complementary to the part one, which if you haven't listened to, please go back and have a listen now. It's about thinking about both the in-hospital aspect and the pre-hospital aspect, giving you a framework for both sides of those so that this highly charged environment we can have some control over so we can make these interactions a bit more standardized and take some of that stress away from them while still giving all of the information we need. You need to practice this. This is just like any other skill. And for me, sometimes I do feel as a trauma team leader that I'm almost reading from a script. But like any good actor, I need to be able to remember that script and perform it well every single time and stick to that script as best you can each time you do it, because that consistency will really help. This podcast is really to make us stop and think about how we perform in the research room, just as you've described, Ian. It is a performance. And like all great performances, we can all improve. And so I would suggest to people that if you are in the trauma team lead role, if you're doing this on a regular basis, then perhaps get somebody else to come in and watch you to give you some clues about how you're doing things well and how you might have areas where you could improve on. All of us can get better. And that's what this is all about. All of us can get better. If you've any comments about this podcast or the first podcast that we did from Smack, then please do put them in the comment section of the blog post. We always want to hear what it is you're doing in your hospitals. That experience you have, whether that's in the UK, whether it's trauma centres, whether it's trauma units or whether it's abroad, can be really valuable to share. So please, please, whether it's on Twitter or on other social media, do let us know what it is you do and any comments you might have about all the things we've said. Thanks again for listening to St. Emily's podcast. We'll be back with you very soon. From both of us, take care.